Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, there is an old Irish proverb that says, a man loves his sweetheart the most, his wife the best, but his mother the longest. The unmistakable bond between a mother and son is hard to break, even when one is accused of an incomprehensible crime. Hello listeners, I'm your new host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 32 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. In late 1957, Elizabeth Duncan attempted to take her own life following an argument with her son, Frank. Elizabeth, known as Ma, was taken to the St. Francis Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara, California to recover. Ma was emotionally dependent on her son and had almost a dozen failed marriages. It appeared as though Ma thought Frank was the only man she could rely on. 28-year-old Frank Duncan was an attorney, a wise career choice for someone whose mother never seemed to be far from some sort of legal dispute, marital or otherwise. When another of her marriages failed, Ma moved into Frank's apartment. Eventually, her son grew tired of her overbearing nature. After Frank told Ma she needed to move out, Ma swallowed a bottle of sleeping tablets and lay down in her son's spare room to die. Frank managed to get his mother to the hospital on time, and Ma would tell a doctor that she was terrified her son would leave her. Their argument was quickly forgotten, and Frank often visited his mother in the hospital. It was here that he first laid eyes on Olga Kupchik a Canadian nurse with reddish hair and a bedside manner that put even the most challenging patients at ease. Olga was the first girl Frank had ever gone steady with, and following their first date in January 1958, they began seeing each other three or four times a week. Olga and Frank's relationship bloomed quite quickly, much to Ma's dismay and irritation. When Frank told his mother he was serious about the beautiful young nurse, she said she did not want him to get married at all, 
especially not to a woman Frank's mother considered a foreigner because they were Canadian. Ma began calling Olga at work and at her home. She demanded that she leave her son alone and threatened to kill her if she did not. Olga spoke to friends about her boyfriend's mother. Olga tried to stand up to Ma and told her that she was going to marry Frank, but Ma said, You'll never marry my son. I'll kill you first. Despite this threat, Frank and Olga were married in secret in June 1958. Olga became pregnant, and at the time, they felt the right thing to do was to get married. Frank asked the county clerk in the Santa Barbara Registry Office not to issue the marriage license to the newspapers until he could tell his mother himself, but he didn't get the chance to break the news gently. When Frank didn't come back to the apartment he shared with his mother that night, she called the hospital to see if Olga was working. She was stunned to hear that Olga had taken the night off because it was her wedding night. Ma would never have approved the marriage, and when she found out about it, she was furious. She forbade Frank from living with his wife, and when he went to visit Olga, Ma would turn up at the apartment and argue with him until he agreed to go home with her. Frank eventually had enough and left to live with Olga in a new apartment a few weeks later. He knew better than to give his mother his new address, but Ma was determined to get her son back. Far from being an excited, expectant grandmother-to-be, Ma was incensed when she discovered that Olga was pregnant. Within weeks, Ma began telling people that Frank had not fathered the child. Even more worryingly, she started offering people she knew large sums of cash to kill her daughter-in-law. When word got back to Frank, he reasoned with his wife and told her he would go back to living with his mother to keep her out of their relationship. He said he would still come over to the apartment, but Ma was not happy with that arrangement. She wanted Olga completely out of Frank's life for good. Reports vary in both the number of times Ma was married and the number of times she was in trouble with the law. It seems as though she had been charged with fraud and running a brothel before, and she always ran to Frank to help get her out of a bind. In 1950, she married a man in San Francisco, only to get it annulled an hour later. She married and divorced three more times in the three years that followed. She had once married Frank's classmate from college, 27-year-old Stephen Gillis, in 1954, but it did not last. In 1957, her marriage to Leonard Solonet was annulled after she told him she would inherit a large sum of money if she got married. When he discovered she was lying, he ended the marriage. She always had Frank to go back to, but now her adult son was moving on with his own life and having a child of his own with a wife that he loved. But Ma, ever the thorn in Frank's side, feared she would end up alone. She thought of a way to get her son back. She did something she had done several times before, filing for an annulment. But this time, she impersonated her daughter-in-law. Every step of the way, Ma either brought her 82-year-old friend Emma Short with her or told her about it afterwards. Ma asked a man named Ralph Winterstein to pose as Frank when she retained an attorney named Hal Hammond and got her son's marriage annulled by Judge Perry Churchill in Ventura County. Laws at the time did not dictate that the couple needed to provide proof of their marriage or their identification 
So a woman in her mid-50s was able to fraudulently sign the documents under her 30-year-old daughter-in-law's name. And Ralph, posing as Frank, told the judge that his wife had secretly intended not to consummate their marriage, and the annulment was granted. All the while, Frank and Olga, preparing to welcome their first child, had no idea that their marriage was legally over. Ma began going to Olga's apartment when she was at work, searching through the closets and drawers for any sign that Frank had been staying there. When she met the apartment building manager, she made no secret of her disdain for Olga, saying, She's not going to have him. I will kill her if it is the last thing I do. When Ralph, who had impersonated Frank at the fraudulent annulment, refused to kill Olga in exchange for money, Ma reached out to her son's clients, many of whom he had helped fight criminal charges. One of the people Ma spoke to was Diane Romero. Ma told Diane and her lodger, Rebecca Diaz, that Olga was blackmailing Frank, and she needed help finding someone who would get rid of her. Ma asked Diane to go to Olga's apartment and scout it out. When Olga answered the door in a remarkable coincidence, Diane recognized her as someone who had looked after her in the hospital years prior. Diane and her husband, Rudolph, refused to have any part in Ma's plan. But Rebecca Diaz had promised to tell Ma if she found anyone willing to get Olga out of town. In November of that same year, Ma called Rebecca and told her, Forget about it. I won't need you anymore. It'll be today or never. Within days, Olga was missing. Things were coming to a head between Olga and Frank. Ma's constant interference, menacing phone calls, and threats became too much for Olga to bear. At almost eight months pregnant, she was beginning to exhibit physical symptoms of stress. She disclosed to her obstetrician that her mother-in-law had been causing a lot of trouble, making her fear for her job and for her life. Frank and Olga became estranged after his birthday on November 7th, and Olga was frightened to be in the apartment alone all of the time. On November 17th, fellow nurses Sylvia Butler and Doreen Coriani came to visit her until around 11.30 p.m. when they said goodnight and that they would see her at work. The following morning, Olga wasn't outside waiting for her taxi when it arrived to take her to St. Francis Hospital just before 7 a.m. Her landlady noticed that the front door was open and the drapes were blowing in the wind. The landlady said, I thought that was funny because she was so frightened of her mother-in-law. She always kept her apartment locked. Olga was due to assist in a surgery that day, and when she didn't turn up, her colleagues became concerned and went to her apartment. When they went inside, they noticed that although Olga had pulled back her bed covers, she had not slept in the bed, and nothing was missing from the house apart from her nightgown and robe. Her slippers were found in the bathroom, and there was no apparent sign of a disturbance or a struggle. When police began searching for the pregnant nurse, Hal Hammonds contacted the district attorney to tell him that he had represented a couple who claimed to be Frank and Olga Duncan three months earlier. Mr. Hammonds had discovered that Frank Duncan was also an attorney a month earlier and called him at his office in Santa Barbara. Frank told Hammonds that he had no idea about the annulment. Once it was reported that Olga was missing, the attorney informed the authorities. The district attorney, Roy Gustafson, later said, 
I feel very strongly that there might not have been any disappearance had we been able to move on the case in October. When the investigators learned about the tumultuous relationship between Olga and her mother-in-law, they theorized she may have gone into hiding to safely have her baby. But a search of her apartment showed that Olga had taken nothing with her. Her luggage, passport, and purse were all left behind. Police searched the area for any sign of Olga, scouring nearby woodlands and urging fishermen to keep an eye on the waterways for any bodies. As weeks passed without any sightings of the missing woman, Frank began to notice that his mother was spending a lot of money. She'd pawned her best jewelry and had not used a $150 check he wrote for her to buy a new typewriter as she said she would. When Frank confronted his mother about it, Ma began crying and claimed she was being blackmailed by two Mexican men because they knew she had forged the annulment. They were working for clients of Frank's who were less than pleased with his work as an attorney. Frank immediately reported the extortion to police. As it happened, the man accused was already in custody on other charges. Ma was called into the station to identify the man she claimed was blackmailing her, but she refused to do so and they left. Investigators were immediately suspicious. They knew that Ma had fraudulently obtained an annulment for her son and Olga, but with whispers that Olga was afraid of her mother-in-law, they wondered if Ma knew more about Olga's disappearance. In mid-December, Ma Duncan was arrested and charged with bribing a witness, the falsification of a legal paper, forgery with intent, aiding and abetting, and lying under oath in relation to the annulment. Police began searching for Ralph, the man who had impersonated Frank, and Frank decided to represent his mother in court despite the charges she was facing. On December 12th, while Ma was in custody, her friend and confidant, 82-year-old Emma Short, came forward and told the detectives everything she knew. Mrs. Short had known Ma for 20 years and was there when Ma first made arrangements to obtain the annulment. Mrs. Short said that from the beginning of August, every time Ma would see Frank, they would argue about him marrying Olga, and Ma insisted that, if I have to kill her myself, you will not live with Olga. In the first week of August, Ma had called the Salvation Army and asked for someone to be sent over to do some work for her. When Ralph arrived, he was told he would be paid $50 to impersonate Frank at the annulment proceedings. The first attorney they went to wanted no part in the matter when he heard Ma say that she wanted to destroy Olga. He warned her, Do you know, Mrs. Duncan, the consequences of doing this? Do you know that it is the electric chair? After going with Ma and Ralph to obtain the annulment, Mrs. Short said that Ma had asked many friends to help her find someone to get rid of Olga. The first person she went to was Barbara Reed. In August, Ma offered Barbara $1,500 to throw acid in Olga's face and drive her up the mountain someplace and push her off a cliff. Stunned by the request, Barbara went to Frank to warn him. She told him, You've got to do something about her, Frankie. This girl is in danger, and I think your mother has gone crazy. Barbara recalled Frank had replied, You know it, too. Barbara said she had warned Frank to take Olga out of town someplace where she would be safe. Mrs. Short told the investigators that Ma had considered killing Olga herself if she couldn't find someone else to do it. Mrs. Short said, 
Mrs. Duncan asked me to go over to Olga's apartment and try to sell something to her or get her to come to my apartment and take care of someone who was very ill and see if she could help out. When she got her to my apartment, she would have her sit in a chair that goes against the closet. Mrs. Duncan would be in there and she would take a rope and put it around her neck and shoulder and throw poison in her eyes and then break every bone in her body if she could. She would cut off her hair and do terrible things to her body and hang her up in my closet and leave her there until evening. Then she wanted to put a blanket around her, take her down to the wharf, and put a stone to her and throw her in. On November 12th, the plan began to take shape. Mrs. Short went with Ma to the Tropical Cafe in Santa Barbara, where she spoke with the owner, Esperanza Esquivel. Esperanza's husband was one of Frank Duncan's clients. Ma knew this because she often sat in the gallery at the trials her son worked on, waiting on the sidelines, intrusive and overbearing. While Mrs. Short and Ma sat in the cafe, Ma told Esperanza that her son's wife was blackmailing her and had threatened to throw acid in Frank's face. Ma asked Esperanza if she knew of anyone who would get rid of Olga for her, and Esperanza said she knew some boys she could ask. The following day, Ma and Mrs. Short went back to the cafe, where they met two of Esperanza's employees, Luis Moya and Augustine Baldonado. Ma repeated the same sorry story that Olga was blackmailing her precious boy. After proposing a number of ways they could get rid of her daughter-in-law, she agreed to pay the men $3,000 to kidnap Olga, transport her to Tijuana, and kill her. Ma said she would pay them half of the money when the job was done, and the other half a few months later. But the men needed some payment up front. Moya and Baldonado said they would need money for a gun, a vehicle, and other essentials like gloves. So Ma went and pawned some jewelry before returning to the cafe and handing over $175. Moya and Baldonado said they would call her when the job was done. Esperanza Esquivel was brought in for questioning and admitted that she had introduced Ma to the pair. She said that late on the night that Olga went missing, Moya and Baldonado had returned to the cafe in bloody and disheveled clothing. She remembered them saying, We have Mrs. Duncan's job done. They can't find the witch. The body is in or behind the pipe. I had to hit that witch. That witch sure screamed. With this information, the police arrested Ma Duncan, Louis Moya, and Augustine Baldonado, and charged them with crimes unrelated to the murder scheme, so a grand jury could decide what charges they would face. Frank Duncan made his mother proud when he successfully argued for her bail to be reduced from $50,000 to $5,000. When asked if he thought his mother had anything to do with Olga's disappearance, he said, I can tell when she is lying. She did not appear to be lying to me now. But Ma Duncan was not released. On December 19th, conspiracy to commit murder charges were filed against her, and her bail was raised to $100,000. Police had no idea where Olga was or if she had, in fact, been killed. There was no sign of a disturbance at her apartment, and Frank had been continuing to pay rent there. Olga's family in Canada were extremely concerned for her safety. Her parents, older brother William and younger sister Irene, were trying to assist in the investigation in any way they could. 
Olga's father, Elias, spoke to the L.A. Times about letters Olga had written to them in the weeks after her marriage. He said, She told us she was afraid of her, and then only two weeks after she was married, she wrote us that she could not take it any longer and that she had separated from her husband. A family friend, Steve Whiteco, told the Times that he had spoken to Olga often since she had moved to California. He said, She was such a nice girl, but she lived in fear of her mother-in-law. She was constantly moving from the apartment to keep out of her way. She wasn't happy because her mother-in-law wouldn't let her be happy. Captain A.C. Wade with the Santa Barbara police said that they would be looking into sewer works that were ongoing in the area around the time of Olga's disappearance. He said, We are now searching for the body of Olga Duncan. We are trying to pinpoint where it may be. We are still considering the possibility as remote that her body may have been placed in an excavation. FBI agents were brought in to assist in the investigation due to the federal charges against Ma Duncan. After transferring Baldonado to a local jail, the investigators tried to get the kidnapped suspects to talk. Police interrogated Baldonado and Moya, and eventually, one of them cracked. Baldonado had been arrested a number of times before, most recently for failing to provide for his wife and newborn twins. He claimed it was for his children that he confessed to Ventura County Sheriff's investigator Ray Higgins. Baldonado said that after agreeing a price with Moya and Ma, they had borrowed a friend's car for $25 and borrowed a gun from another friend. He said that he and Moya drove around in the car, trying to decide where it would be best to abduct Olga and where they could dispose of her body. On the night of November 17th, they carried out their awful plan. Moya knocked on the apartment door, and when Olga answered in her nightgown and robe, he told her he was a friend of Frank's, and Frank was drunk in the back of the car and needed help getting him inside. Concerned for her estranged husband, Olga stepped outside and walked over to the open back door of the car. Baldonado had been lying down, half covered with a blanket. When Olga leaned in to help, Baldonado pulled her into the car, and Moya struck her in the back of the head with the butt of the pistol. The blow was inflicted with such force that Olga immediately lost consciousness and the pistol handle broke. While Moya drove the car from the scene, Baldonado used tape to ensure Olga couldn't escape. Their $25 rental car wouldn't get them far, and instead of making it across the border, they made it to the mountains near Ojai in Ventura County. Here, they dragged Olga from the car and down into a culvert that ran beneath the roadway. She struggled and fought desperately not only for her life, but for her unborn daughter's life too. They had planned on shooting her, but the gun was broken, so they attempted to strangle her, neither quite knowing if they had killed her, so the other took over. When they believed she was dead, they decided to bury her. They hadn't brought a shovel, so on their hands and knees, they clawed at the dirt and dug a hole just big enough to conceal the body of the eight-month pregnant woman they believed was dead. As poorly carried out as their murder plan was, the cleanup was worse. Olga's blood was inside the car. It soaked through the seat covers, and when they told the car owner they had thrown the covers away after burning them with a cigarette, they tried to conceal the telltale red signs with lacquer. They promised to pay to replace the broken gun, too. 
After telling Ma that they'd done the job and they desperately needed money, Ma said she wasn't able to go to the bank because police were watching their accounts. So she used the check Frank had given her for a typewriter and made small payments of $10, which she left in envelopes addressed to Moya's fictitious Aunt Dorothy. After confessing, Baldonado drew a map for the investigators and told them where they could find Olga's body. But his map was wrong, and he had to go out with them to the area to find the crude grave on December 21, 1958. It took several attempts for Baldonado to point out the right spot. He wanted to assist as much as possible, but he was hapless. As investigators began to uncover the shallow grave, Baldonado began to panic and had to be taken to a priest to calm down. Coroner Virgil L. Payton said that although Olga had sustained numerous lacerations and blows to the head, she had not suffered any skull fractures, and her cause of death was asphyxiation. But it was impossible to determine if the asphyxiation had resulted from manual strangulation or if Olga had suffocated after she was buried alive. When Olga's family learned that she had been found dead, her mother Jessie collapsed and had a heart attack. Her father, Elias, said he would come to California to arrange his daughter's funeral before returning home. Once Olga's body had been discovered, officers reported that Ma Duncan faintly smiled upon hearing the news, a micro-expression she couldn't hide. The district attorney, Roy Gustafson, stated that the case would be the first murder case tried under the three-phase law he authored. The first part would be to determine the suspect's guilt. The second would determine the penalty, and the third would determine their sanity. As Olga had been over five months pregnant, authorities considered pressing double homicide charges. Before charges were filed, a statement written by the DA printed alongside large images of the victim and the accused was published in all of the local and regional papers. It read, The brutal, calculated, revolting killing for hire of Olga Duncan is one of a number of horrible crimes committed in California. I simply cannot understand how some of our leaders, in the face of these events, can seriously contend that the death penalty is not appropriate punishment for the perpetrators of such a crime. Retaliation is a basic instinct of the human race. In civilized societies, the government takes over from the individual the job of retaliating against a wrongdoer. From biblical times, a life for a life has been recognized as just and fair. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. While a grand jury was being assembled, 20-year-old Luis Moya was taken into custody. 
Moya was born in San Angelo, Texas, and although he had a good upbringing, he began taking drugs at the age of 11. His trouble with the law began soon afterwards. By the age of 12, Moya was arrested in brothels several times. He was later convicted of theft, burglary, possession, and smuggling of narcotics, and stabbing someone. After spending Christmas Day in jail on suspicion of kidnap, Moya asked to speak with a priest. Reverend Floyd Gresset attended the jail, and for the first time in Moya's short life, he got on his knees and begged for God's forgiveness. After telling the priest what he had done to Olga, Moya confessed to the investigators. The grand jury convened the following day. Moya testified, having confessed in full the night before. He repeated his statements in the courtroom. He said after agreeing on a price with Baldonado and Ma, they had discussed ways to kill Olga. Moya stated, Well, I said, why don't we follow her from where she was employed, and maybe kidnap her there in the streets and put her in the car, and maybe take her across the border to Tijuana and get rid of her over there some way. And the suggestion that Mrs. Duncan contributed was that she thought it was a good idea, and that she had acid and rope to tie, in case we needed it, and in case we wanted the acid to disfigure her features and her mouth, as she put it. And in that way, there wouldn't be any possible means of identification. When the DA asked if Ma Duncan had explicitly said that she wanted Olga killed, Moya replied, Yes, she did. She said she hated her very much due to the fact the reason she gave was that she had been blackmailing her son. Moya spoke about going to Olga's house on the night of the murder. He said, At first she turned the lights on and pulled the curtain out, and I told her my purpose of being there. And then when she opened the door and I explained more thoroughly what I was up there for and she offered to help, she came down. She was wearing a housecoat and a slip underneath. And as she opened the door to the back seat of the car, I hit her a blow over the head with this twenty-two pistol. She screamed for help and in the same instant, Baldonado grabbed her and dragged her in the car. She was already half in because as I hit her, I pushed her. Moya said that as he was driving away, he passed the gun back to Baldonado to knock Olga out to keep her quiet, but she wouldn't pass out, so he pulled over and hit her himself until she did. The car wasn't running well, so they abandoned their plan to cross the border. After he wasn't paid as promised, he began calling Ma Duncan, but she only ever paid them a few hundred dollars before he was arrested on suspicion of extortion. Mrs. Short and Esperanza Esquivel, who were in witness protection following their statements to the police, testified alongside a number of other witnesses who had knowledge of the murder-for-hire plot. Barbara Reed testified that Ma Duncan first planned to kill Olga in August of that year. Barbara told the grand jury that Ma wanted Olga out of the way because she was interfering with Frank's future. The witness said, She wanted me to go to the house and take care of Olga. I asked her what she meant, and she said that she had plenty of acid and anything else she needed. She asked me if I would go to the house and ring the doorbell, and when the girl would answer the door, throw the acid in her face, that she would be behind me and take a blanket and put it over the girl and drag her out to the car and drive her up to the mountain someplace and push her over a cliff. Diane and Rudy Romero also testified that they had been asked to kill Olga. Diane told the grand jury, she said she wanted lye so she could put Olga in the bathtub, put some water in the tub, and pour the lye over her so that you couldn't recognize her, make her dissolve or something. Frank Duncan took the stand. He had been in hiding since the discovery of Olga's body a week earlier. 
living in an apartment in Hollywood under a false name. He said he had learned of the discovery of his wife's remains over the radio. He said, It was an unbelievable thing. I had kept thinking that any minute I would find where she was and that she was alive. He said that he had moved away because he wanted to be alone. Olga's family were making their way to Los Angeles to claim Olga's body as Frank had not done so. When he finally resurfaced, he signed a release permitting Olga's father to claim her remains. Frank told the grand jury that within days of his marriage, his mother had arrived at their apartment, pounding on the door and raising a rumpus. He testified that Ma objected to him providing any financial support to his pregnant wife, like paying for her rent or buying a television for the apartment. He said that a week after getting married, he feared it would be the shortest marriage on record because he had gotten into trouble at work when the operator noticed an influx of personal calls flooding in from his wife and mother, who called to complain about each other. Frank was asked what he did when Barbara Reed had warned him about his mother's threats to kill Olga in August three months before Olga's disappearance. Frank said that he had confronted Ma and told him that she had only spoken about her fears that Olga would kidnap her son. Frank asked his mother to stop talking to people because it was embarrassing. Frank said he could not recall his mother ever doing anything cruel to anyone and said, I knew she had called my wife, but I never knew she had threatened her with physical violence. When the prosecutor asked Frank if he believed in his mother, Frank replied, Certainly, sir. I would not want to believe that she would have anything to do with this. Certainly, if she did it, it was a frightful insanity. Frank had told reporters that morning, If mother was involved in this, she must have been insane. But I find it fantastic to believe that she would hurt Olga. Mother couldn't kill anything, not even an animal. When he was asked if he thought his mother could have hired someone else to carry out the killing, he said, I've heard so many things. I just don't know. Frank said that he had become estranged from his wife less than 10 days before her disappearance, but he would have reconciled with her if he had the chance. He remarked, one more week and I would have been there, and you can't buy back a second. Frank told the grand jury that he was indescribably miserable after losing his wife and unborn child. Mrs. Short had testified about the relationship between Frank and his mother. She said, Apparently, he was very much in love with her, and I think they occupied the same bed. I think they were very intimate, such as a man and wife would be. Letters Olga wrote described how Ma had an uncanny hold over Frank, and the authorities even described Frank as a mommy's boy. Frank had been replaced by another attorney, S. Ward Sullivan, while his mother faced more serious charges, and the media interest only heightened when the grand jury testimony was revealed. Most of the investigation had been narrated publicly in the press by the investigators and district attorney. The Ventura County Star's Joe Paul Jr. wrote the following in an article which shows the spectacle the case had become. Mrs. Elizabeth Gold, Cogbill, Gillis, Sasso, Satriano, Solonay, Knight, Duncan, much-married 54-year-old Santa Barbara housewife, is a very calm, unruffled prisoner in Ventura County Jail. Many people had made up their minds about the case as soon as the lurid details began to be revealed, and it did not take long for the grand jury to decide either. After listening to testimony from 15 witnesses over a lengthy hearing, the grand jury took under 15 minutes to return a three-count indictment charging Ma Duncan, Louis Moya, and Augustine Boldenado with murder. Speaking after the indictment was returned, 
Frank said he couldn't believe his mother would kill Olga. He said, Sure, mother had acted badly toward Olga, and it was obvious she did not approve of her. But having her killed? This just doesn't seem possible. There was no indication that she was thinking of such a thing. Speaking freely to reporters, Frank said that his mother probably had psychiatric issues. Still, she would never attend a doctor's appointment for that. He talked about his mother's overdose and said that she may have suffered a brain injury as a result. When confronted with the fact that a number of witnesses had been approached and propositioned by his mother to kill Olga, Frank said, Why didn't someone come to me? If she was trying to get someone to do this thing, why didn't they tell me? No one ever mentioned these things to me, and if they had, maybe something could have been done to prevent what happened. Sure, mother did not approve of our marriage, but then, many mothers don't approve of their son's marriage. That doesn't mean you must expect a murder. At around 2 a.m. on December 29th, police matron, Mrs. Ida Madrid, found Ma in her cell gasping for breath. When asked what was wrong, Ma said that it was her heart. Deputies rushed Ma to the hospital where an ECG was performed, but there was no indication that she had had a heart attack. She was returned to her cell within an hour, and the DA said to the press, This is a trick used by many persons in jail on a serious charge. The DA also said he had no issue putting California's third woman in the gas chamber. The following day, Olga's family began making arrangements for her funeral. The sorrowful occasion also marked the first time Frank had met his wife's family. Olga and her baby were cremated, and her ashes were due to be returned to Canada. However, her father had to rush back to his wife, Olga's mother. She was still critically ill following a heart attack. Ma, Moya, and Boldenado were arraigned on charges the same day. Ma had retained the services of S. Ward Sullivan, and her co-defendants were granted legal aid and court-appointed defense attorneys. Henson for Moya, and Danch for Boldenado. On January 6th, Ma Duncan entered pleas of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. Hundreds of people had gathered in the spectators' gallery, and their stunned reaction to the pleas was audible in the crowded courtroom. Her attorney asked for a motion to change the venue as the pretrial publicity was unprecedented in recent memory. Moya's attorney asked to delay the plea hearings for the other two defendants and to delay the trial for two months, saying, There is a great deal of prejudice in this courtroom as I listen to the ohs and ahs on Mrs. Duncan's plea. I prefer to have it in March when the hysteria has died down. Ma also pleaded not guilty to the charges relating to the fraudulently obtained annulment. The judge ordered that Ma undergo psychiatric examinations by doctors at the Camarillo State Hospital which Ma adamantly refused. She was ordered to submit to the testing, and she did, but she would not speak about the allegations against her. On January 13th, Moya and Baldonado also pleaded not guilty, and not guilty by reason of insanity, while their attorneys argued for a change of venue. For almost six weeks, their names and faces had appeared in most newspapers in the county and many newspapers in the state. Mr. Henson, for Moya, submitted letters from members of the public and a high-ranking judge, which bolstered his claims that the public prejudice would impact his client's right to a fair trial. He said that public sentiment was that the defendants should be executed without a trial, and even his 11-year-old daughter had asked him why he had taken the case. 
Henson said that the stakes were too high to risk a biased jury. He told the court, This is a case where the prospects that the defendants look forward to may be the dropping of pellets and the directions to count to ten and take a deep breath. Someone in the gallery allegedly tried to hit Ma Duncan with their purse, and her co-defendants wanted to sever their trials. Ralph Winterstein, the man Ma had hired to impersonate her son at the annulment hearing, was captured by the FBI in mid-January and charged with unlawful flight to avoid giving testimony at Ma's trial. He was then indicted on three counts, perjury, forgery, and accepting a bribe. At a hearing when Moya, Boldonado, and Ma were present, they were lined up beside each other for photographers to get pictures. And when Ma refused, Baldonado asked her, Why? Are you ashamed of what you have done? In order to separate their trials, Boldonado and Moya withdrew their pleas and pleaded guilty to the charges. When asked if he felt as though he had been able to distinguish between right and wrong at the time of the offense, Moya said, Well, I personally myself don't think that any person who would do any horrible thing as what I did would be in a right state of mind. For that matter, I believe anybody who commits any kind of crime wouldn't be in a right kind of mind. That is my personal opinion. But I believe that the psychiatrists and I myself think that I know what was right from wrong at the time also, to a certain extent. Baldonado and Moya both expressed remorse and claimed that they would never have carried out the hit if they knew the truth, or if they knew that Olga was pregnant. As they had pleaded guilty, they would not have to stand trial on the charges, but would face a penalty trial to determine if they would receive the death penalty. Ma Duncan's trial got underway on February 16, 1959. Those most interested in the case had queued outside the courthouse from 7 a.m., desperate to get a seat in the gallery. But somehow, over a dozen enthusiasts had snuck inside the courtroom before it was even opened, and they were swiftly removed. 149 people were seated as prospective jurors when voir dire began. Voir dire is the process where the defense and prosecution can ask potential jurors questions that would allow them to reveal any bias they may have. For example, the panel were asked if they had already formed an opinion of the case based on what they had read or heard. The defense also asked jurors who expressed that they would be impartial if they would want a family member to be tried in front of the same jury for the same charges. They were asked, Would you want your wife, accused as is Mrs. Duncan, tried by a jury made up of men and women in the frame of mind in which you now find yourself in? Although almost every single member of the panel had some knowledge of the case, there was no alternative, so the defense had to hope for the most empathetic jurors who would, at best, be impartial when it came to determining if Ma Duncan would be sentenced to death. As it stood, if she was found guilty, it would be the same jury that would determine her fate. None of the final prospective jurors said no when they were asked if they would vote to sentence her to death if she was convicted of the charge. D.A. Gustafson asked them, If it appears from the evidence that she did not kill Olga Kupchik Duncan personally, but advised someone else to do it, would that fact preclude you from voting for the death penalty? It took over a week to whittle the jury pool down to 12 members, and testimony began on February 24th. Frank Duncan had not visited his mother often since she was arraigned on the charges, but he was present at the court and Mom made sure to correct reporters who had described him as a mama's boy in articles. Days earlier, yet another person who claimed to have been propositioned by Ma Duncan to kill her daughter-in-law 
reported their interaction to the police. 40-year-old Eugene Cook had been arrested on suspicion of driving under the influence, and he had a photograph believed to be of Olga Duncan. In the end, it was determined that he was not being truthful, as he had been an inpatient at a psychiatric hospital for the previous four years, and the photograph was of his wife. Ma Duncan underwent a neurological exam at Camarillo State Hospital after her attorney said that he believed she had a history of traumatic brain injury as a result of her overdose and a car accident years earlier. District Attorney Gustafson opened the trial by telling the jury that Olga had come to Santa Barbara just over a year prior to starting her first nursing job at Cottage Hospital. After meeting Frank Duncan through his mother, who was a patient at the hospital, a romance blossomed and Ma Duncan feared she would lose her son when he alternately promised not to marry and then said he would do what he wanted. The DA said that Ma had obtained the annulment to slander Olga's name, telling anyone who would listen that the woman was living in sin. They could check the Ventura County clerk records to prove it. Gustafson told the jury that after meeting Moya and Boldonado through Esperanza Esquivel, Ma Duncan negotiated with the contracted killers, and her orders were carried out on the night of November 17th. The first witness to testify was Lieutenant Leonard Peck, a Santa Barbara police detective. He used a number of exhibits to show the jury key locations, including where the plan was conceived and where it was carried out. The next witness, Mrs. Downhower, testified that Ma Duncan had asked her to spy on Frank and that Ma had told her that she would get rid of the woman he had married while he was in the prime of his career. When Mrs. Downhower told Ma that Frank, who was almost 30, was old enough to marry if he wanted to, Ma replied that he was still his mama's little boy. Barbara Reed testified that she had met Ma Duncan over a decade earlier when they were neighbors and that she used to be friends with Ma's daughter, Patsy. Patsy died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage at age 15. Barbara was the one who told Frank of his mother's intentions toward Olga just two months after they got married. Testimony also came from Olga's landlady and other people who had been asked to kill Olga. One of Olga's confessed killers testified for the prosecution. Louis Moya told the jury all about the plan hatched by Ma Duncan and how he and Boldonado went through with it. Frank Duncan supported himself against a wall in the courtroom as he sobbed throughout the retelling of his pregnant wife's final moments. He ran from the room and did not return until Baldonado and the medical experts had finished speaking. Despite confessing to the police and grand jury, Baldonado said he wasn't sure that he had hit or restrained Olga, only that he had checked her pulse before she was buried. Ralph Winterstein testified about his involvement in the case, from posing as Frank for the annulment to turning down Ma's request for him to kill Olga. Ralph also alleged that Ma had proposed marriage to him also. Mrs. Esquivel testified that she did not know that Ma had hired her employees as hitmen, and she only realized when they returned to the cafe covered in blood. She had been in witness protection for almost six months at the time of the trial, as had the other key witness, Emma Short. Three inmates from the Ventura County Jail were called to testify about an escape plot Ma Duncan was involved in. One of the inmates said that Ma had threatened to do something to one of the matrons before escaping and going to Hollywood, where they would change their appearance and fingerprints with the help of Ma's friend. Another testified that the escape had been planned for January 10th, and that Ma would have someone call a matron to the cell where they would kill her and take her keys in order to escape. 
The third inmate testified that Ma Duncan had spoken about fooling psychiatrists to successfully use an insanity defense in the case. The inmate said Ma would purposely dirty her jail uniform to elicit sympathy from her attorney. Ma also apparently confessed to her jailmates that Olga got what she deserved and that she hoped Frank wasn't paying anything toward her funeral. Ma spoke about her son at length and said, On cold mornings, I still sleep in bed with Frank. I don't see anything wrong with that. Ma told the other inmates that Olga was a Russian spy and a drug addict, and she told them they beat her and beat her and beat her, but the old bitch wouldn't die. Isn't that just like a mean old Russian? Baldonado had to be escorted from the courtroom during testimony from the jailhouse informants after they said that Ma had called them foolish for carrying out the job without getting their money. The prosecution closed their case after six days of testimony from 27 witnesses, and the defense began to call their witnesses. The defense's case was that Ma Duncan was being blackmailed by members of the Santa Barbara Mexican-American community after Frank had represented Esperanza Esquivel's husband and failed to get him acquitted. Ma Duncan claimed that Moya and Baldonado were working on behalf of the Esquivels and trying to threaten her to make her return the retainment fee they had paid Frank for legal representation. Ma's attorney argued that Moya and Baldonado had abducted and killed Olga as part of their extortion plot and highlighted the fact that many of the witnesses knew one another to bolster the claim that it was all a conspiracy against Ma Duncan. On March 3rd, Ma Duncan testified in her own defense. Ma said that she had planned to take Frank out of Santa Barbara in the hopes that he would come to his senses and leave Olga. Ma claimed that she had hatched the plan and enlisted the help of Barbara Reed, and 82-year-old Emma Short, but had decided not to go through with it in the end. She admitted that she was devastated by Frank's marriage and said she had attempted an overdose when he asked her to move out in late 1957. Ma told the jury, If I had to live alone, I wanted to die. I'm petrified if I have to be by myself at night. Ma said that the premature death of her teenage daughter Patsy in 1948 had led to trouble sleeping and that she had to take sleeping tablets at night. Crying on the stand, Ma said that she first heard about her son's plans to marry Olga the day before their wedding and that he had promised her he wouldn't go through with it after she reminded him that he had enough bills to pay. She said that she had not spoken to Olga before then, a statement which flew in the face of the witnesses who testified that Ma had harassed Olga almost every day since the relationship began. Ma said she first formed a poor opinion of Olga after she confronted her about having Frank stay over every other night. Ma said that when she accused them of having premarital relations, Olga admitted it. Ma told the jury, I told her I didn't want a daughter-in-law of her character, but she called me a bad name and said she would marry my son whether I liked it or not. Ma spoke of occasions where she argued with Olga at the couple's apartment, and Olga had told her to get out because she was not wanted there. She said Esperanza Esquivel was the mastermind behind the murder plot, and that she felt sorry for the men supposedly hired to intimidate her, Baldonado and Moya. Ma claimed she did not know Esperanza before going to the Tropical Cafe in November, but it was Esperanza who had recognized her as the mother of her husband's attorney. Ma told the court that Moya had pulled her into the cafe the following day as she walked past. Esperanza had demanded her money back for her husband's legal fees after he was sentenced to prison. Ma said that Esperanza had forced her to pawn her jewelry in order to pay her some money and that Baldonado had followed her to the pawn shop to make sure she went through with it. Ma claimed she was terrified, 
but the pawn shop owner testified that she was calm and pleasant when he met her that day. Ma said she did not want to tell Frank what was happening, but he found out when she cashed a check he had given her and called the police to report that his mother was being extorted. Ma said she did not identify Moya as her blackmailer in December because she felt sorry for him. The police had supplied her with a recording device to get evidence of the extortion, but she never presented any evidence because she claimed the machine didn't work. The prosecution proved that it did work perfectly. When Ma was cross-examined by D.A. Gustafson, the spectators delighted in finally hearing more about the woman accused of orchestrating the brutal murder of her daughter-in-law. Some spectators had been attending the trial with such enthusiasm that they befriended the deputy charged with guarding the door and sang happy birthday to him before testimony began. Ma Duncan was born in Kansas City, Missouri on April 6, 1904. She had been born Hazel Sinclair Nye, but changed her name to Elizabeth before marrying at least 11 times and having almost as many children. She had Frank with her first husband, Frank Lowe, but he was later adopted by another husband, Frank Duncan, who she separated from in 1949. The prosecution contended that some of Ma's marriages were bigamous, as she hadn't dissolved her prior union before tying the knot once more. The DA asked Ma if she loved Frank more than her other children, and she said that she did. She claimed that Frank was infertile after contracting the mumps as a child, and it was, for this reason, that she suspected Olga was carrying someone else's baby. On the stand, she tried to dismiss the rumors surrounding her unnatural relationship with her son, saying that he never slept with her and that he would only come to her bedside when she woke up screaming in the night. Ma said that she did not oppose Frank's relationship with Olga specifically, but she did not want him to marry at that time. She said that everything she had done was because she wanted Frank to come home to her. The last question Ma's attorney asked was if she, at any time in her mind and heart, planned to kill Olga Duncan. She answered no. One of the last questions the DA asked her was, Did you have anything in your heart that you wanted more than to have Olga Duncan killed? Ma said she never wanted her killed and knew what it was like to lose a daughter. Frank Duncan testified for the defense. He told the court that he was proud to say he had lived with his mother almost all of his 30 years of life and denied that she had interfered in his love life before his marriage. He said that he hadn't told his mother about his plans to marry Olga because Mother was petrified at being alone. I was always there. I was the apple of her eye. I knew it would hurt her. She did not want to lose me unless to a girl she really liked. Frank said that when he saw his mother the day after his wedding, she wept uncontrollably and appeared to be in a panic. He said he was like a yo-yo after the wedding, going back and forth between his marital home and his mother's house. Frank said, I loved my mother, and I love her still, but I loved my wife also. I thought if I could keep some kind of peace with my mother and with my wife when the baby was born, my mother would come around and it would be a happy affair. She wanted me to secure an annulment, and I refused. I told her in unmistakable terms that I loved my wife and had no desire to sever the relationship. I believe she cried. When asked about Barbara Reed coming to tell him about his mother's proposition to her, Frank said, It sounded preposterous to me. I said I would take care of it. I immediately went home to my mother and related the conversation. She said, That girl's lying. I was just going to kidnap you, tie you up, take you to Los Angeles, and bring you to your senses. 
Frank said he was furious and told his mother not to cause him any more embarrassment. Frank backed up most of his mother's story, that she had only planned to kidnap him, that he had to threaten to leave to get her to identify Moya as a blackmailer, and that the recording device did not work. He denied any of the allegations that he shared a bed with his mother, and said that he had hoped his baby would repair the relationship between the two women he loved the most. Despite his denials, spectators in the gallery could not resist calling out, Mama's boy. The prosecution also revealed that Frank had gone on trips while his wife was missing, and had even gone on dates with other women. D.A. Gustafson said that Frank had not told the other woman that he was married, because Frank knew in his mind that his mother had his wife killed. The D.A. accused Frank of only marrying Olga because she was pregnant. Frank said that he would have married her anyway because she had all of the attributes of a good wife and a good woman. He said they had a happy marriage, and when asked if his mother's interference was the only issue, he said, let's just say she hindered its development. The district attorney told the jury in his closing address that Ma Duncan had a greater than normal love for her son, a love equally as intense as her hatred for his wife. Gustafson said that while Esperanza Esquivel was morally guilty for introducing Ma to the contracted killers, she had no legal obligation to report the contemplated or completed crime. The DA called Frank a spineless, jellyfish, liar, and a lady killer, whose marriage certificate turned out to be Olga's death certificate. The DA said, It's obvious that Frank Duncan never did love Olga Duncan. Olga Duncan loved Frank, and she paid for it with her life. There is one person who knows for sure, and that person is the man sitting right here. He knew there was only one person who could do that to this wife, and that was his mother. I don't mean to imply that he is on trial here, but I am just pointing out his position. Is he a man or a mouse? Is he a spineless jellyfish? He certainly is. In a way, he is to be pitied because he is a product of this defendant. But I don't think that overrules the fact that he should have been man enough to refrain from going on the witness stand, or if he did, to tell the truth. The prosecutor told the jury about a wallet Olga gave Frank as a birthday gift 10 days before her death. He had given the wallet to his mother, who destroyed it. This, the DA insisted, proved that Frank had never loved Olga because, as he said, if we love somebody, we keep their gift, even if it is useless. The DA said that Ma Duncan had shopped around for someone to kill her daughter-in-law and told the jury that they could not find a more premeditated murder than this one before he urged them to find Ma Duncan guilty. Sullivan addressed the jury in his closing argument. He said that many mothers opposed their son's marriages. Even though Ma had a rather intense love for her son, it did not mean she would resort to physical violence. He said that many of the witnesses in the case were, in fact, accomplices in the conspiracy against his client, and there was not enough evidence to connect Ma Duncan to the murders carried out by Moya and Baldonado. After just under two hours of deliberations, the jury returned with a verdict. They found Ma Duncan guilty of murder in the first degree, and instead of worrying about the sentence she faced, Ma turned to her beloved son and told him not to worry too much. Frank later said, I knew it was coming, but you can't prepare yourself for that. It's like death. Frank said that he wished he had been with his wife on November 17th, so things would have been different. When asked if he felt as though he was tied to his mother's apron strings, he said, You might call me mommy's boy. I don't think I'm in a position to decide. 
I'll let the facts speak for themselves. He said that the public would soon forget the tragedy, but he never would. Despite the grief he portrayed to the press, Olga's ashes remained unclaimed at the mortuary, and no one had paid for her funeral. The same jury were given the responsibility of determining whether or not Maud Duncan was eligible to receive the death penalty. On April 3, 1959, Maud Duncan was sentenced to die in the gas chamber. As Moya and Baldonado had pled guilty, they only faced penalty trials to determine their sentence. Much of the testimony at the separate hearings had been heard before, but the jury learned about the killer's upbringings and their remorse. Regardless, both men received the same sentence as the woman who hired them. After numerous failed appeals, the execution date was set for August 1962. Frank remained an adamant supporter of his mother, representing her in the appeals and trying for a last-minute stay of execution when Ma Duncan was led into the gas chamber. The night before the sentence was carried out, Frank had cried to reporters, saying, They're going to kill her. It's a most obscene place. I don't know how they can be so cruel. At 10 a.m., dressed in a pink and white striped dress, Ma Duncan stepped into the chamber. Her final words betrayed her expressionless face as she called out, Where's Frank? I want my son. Frank was at the Supreme Court when the cyanide pellets were dropped at 10.04 a.m. Ma Duncan was pronounced dead eight minutes later. Three hours after Ma died, Moya and Baldonado were led into the chamber. They had an enormous last meal, which went against the hunger strike the other death row inmates were participating in after an escape attempt that Moya and Baldonado were a part of, which had resulted in reduced recreation periods. They ordered two shrimp salads with whole tomatoes and avocados, toasted garlic bread, two lobster thermidor, two sirloin steaks with oysters, frog legs, potatoes, refried beans and cheese, and two strawberry shortcakes with whipped cream and Pepsi and root beer to drink. They also ordered lunch and breakfast, club sandwiches, banana milkshakes, banana cream pies, Mexican sausages, tortillas, eggs, hash browns, chili sauce, and a dozen Alka-Seltzers to ensure they didn't get indigestion. Moya and Baldonado were seated side by side in the chamber at 1 p.m. When the pellet dropped, Moya cried out, It's down. I can smell it. It doesn't smell good. Appearing to comfort Moya, Baldonado said, It's all right. We're going to sleep. It's okay. Baldonado's dying wish was for his brother to go and see his kids, the twins who were born just before his arrest, and the little boy who was just two at that time. Ma Duncan was the last woman to be executed in California, and the triple execution of Ma and her conspirators was to be the last occurrence of its kind also. Frank Duncan remarried in the years after the trial to a woman who was also an attorney called Elizabeth. Elizabeth worked alongside Frank to petition for clemency for Ma. Although Elizabeth was safe with her murderous mother-in-law behind bars and subsequently killed in the gas chamber, Frank's marriage did not last. It is highly unlikely that he ever found a woman who could love him the way his mother did. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. 
This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.